0: Hello and welcome to the HRD Live podcast. Now, there are many skills we know we ought to possess in the workplace. Patience, determination, perhaps a working knowledge of Excel. But there are other qualities that are essential to success at work that we often don't take into account. Crucially, self-awareness. Why is this so important and how can we enable ourselves, our leaders and colleagues to become more self-aware? On this episode of the HRD Live podcast, I'm joined by John Haxton, head of thought leadership at the Myers-Briggs Company to discuss self-awareness, gender diversity, the impact of tech, and more. So, John, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for
0: having me. First of all, how do you define self-awareness then in the workplace? Why is it so important? And I suppose, first things first as well, why is it so important to leadership as well? Let's talk off with what self-awareness really is.
1: And uh, I guess one way of looking at it at a very straightforward level is let's suppose you just because you feel like doing so gave a mirror to a gorilla. <laughs> as now, you might, yeah. As you as you do. Now the gorilla would actually recognise there's another gorilla in the mirror, but wouldn't necessarily recognise itself. But if you give that mirror to a chimpanzee or a orangutan or hopefully a human being, <laughs> they would actually recognise who they are. Obviously, that's a very basic level of self-awareness, and we'd expect a bit more. Uh, it's things like, do you understand yourself? Do you understand your motivations? Do you understand why you're doing things? And crucially, I think, especially in regards to leadership and in regards to our relationships in the workplace, do you understand not only why you do things, but start to be able to apply that knowledge to why other people do things as well. Do you have knowledge of your internal states and can you infer, make the right inferences about other people's in, internal states as well?
0: Interesting. So why is that then so crucial for, for work particularly?
1: I think if we all worked in a vacuum where we never had any contact with other people, it wouldn't matter at all. Right. Arguably. Of course. Obviously that's not reality and we actually work with other people over time. One of the things that we found in our research and in our practice is that that degree of self-awareness, that start by understanding yourself, is really crucial to then be able to apply that knowledge to understanding other people. And understanding other people means you understand where where they're coming from. And even if they're very different to you in terms of personality, you can actually work out a modus operandi, a way in which you can work together Mm. with that individual. Because we see people only in one context, we tend to make incorrect inferences about them. So we we're driving along, someone cuts us up, and we immediately think <laughs> they're a really terrible person. Yeah, and they might be, but there might be all sorts of other reasons why why, why they've done mm. that. In a similar way, we'll make inferences about other people which aren't true. We'll think people are doing things in a wrong way, or what we see is wrong way, just to annoy us, just to pee us off. Actually, they may have very different, very good reasons for doing that partly because they have different personality types, they're coming at things from a different angle, and actually understanding that and how it works together with you, I think is really important. But the first step in that journey is understanding yourself before you can apply that knowledge to understanding other people.
0: So, okay, let's take an example then. So, leaders in the workplace then, leadership. How can leaders, I suppose, become more self-aware, but why is it important for a leader to be self-aware particularly, do you think in that way?
1: So let's take a moment to think about what leaders do in the workplace. And hopefully they're doing things like setting the strategic direction for the organisation. They're doing, they're thinking things like, and how do we make that fun out through the organisation? How do we communicate that? The thing is that we all have our own biases. We tend to do things in ways which suit us. We tend to communicate in ways that suits us. The temptation for a leader, perhaps, when to communicate to somebody else is communicated in a way which they know works because it works for them. And if that message isn't heard, to do it again. And do it again. And <laughs> yeah. do it again. Probably in a very similar way. Understanding how people are different allows you to tailor your communication to, to other people as well. One of the things that we found in our own research when we looked at why self-awareness was important is that people... Who took part in our survey and there was around a thousand people um, found that self-awareness and building self-awareness was especially important for things like when he worked with other people in teams when they led and managed other people and that's really because of that self-awareness again is that building block to understanding other people and if part of a job of a leader is understanding other people in their organization at a high level but really understanding yourself, again, is the first phase in doing that. You can think, if you like, of a ladder or a staircase where you start off with the first rung is understanding yourself. The next rung is understanding is applying understanding to other people in your team. The next rung is un- applying understanding to how you manage your team. The further rung is understanding how you apply that knowledge throughout the whole organisation. So that you're able to think about Everyone in the organization and the way they fit together, rather than just doing things in a way which is only driven by data or only driven by hunches or whatever.
0: Fantastic! It, it, it's interesting. So I suppose it's empathy. I suppose, but then you have to have, as you say, that self-knowledge first in order to be empathetic. It, there's no. Kind you do, and
1: I think empathy it. is a is a really important part of it. Obviously, you can't have self-awareness without empathy. Mm-hmm. and That's where it can become a little bit back in <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's it's not necessarily a, a good thing, but what we found in our survey is that people felt the advantages of being self-aware well outweighed the disadvantages of being more
0: self-aware. So we need self-awareness, but coupled with empathy, I suppose. Otherwise, we become Machiavellian I think the geniuses. question of whether
1: we need empathy as well is probably more of an ethical or moral question, right. but I certainly agree with that, yes. <laughs> of
0: course. So looking at the other side of it then, what about, um, aside from leadership, what about employees then and their well-being, I suppose? How can self-awareness be crucial to creating um, more, uh, I suppose, more awareness of it, but also better general well-being in the workplace among employees?
1: I think there's lots of information out there about how you increase your well-being. There are, I don't know how many websites you can go on to look at wellness and uh, and Mm -hmm. so on. But in well-being, as with many other things, in work and in life, I think the key message is one size does not necessarily fit all. So no, again, thinking going back to self-awareness, understanding yourself, mm-hmm. understanding what works for you may not work for other people. I think is a is a crucial first step in, right. in, in, in looking in looking at in looking at well in look, in looking at well-being. Um, one again, we carried out, surprising enough, some research on this as well. Yeah. And over the last we three, like research on yes, it, it, it is sort of what I do for for good or ill, uh, hopefully for good. And we, uh, myself and and especially my colleagues in the United States and Australia as well, carried out research over the last few years. And it it was about uh, just over 10,000 people who have taken part in this research so far. And research is ongoing, looking at well-being and looking at the different aspects of well-being and looking at the sort of things which actually help to to actually build well-being. And well-being really isn't just one thing. It's things like, do you have positive emotions at work? How are your relationships? Uh, does your work engage you? Does it give you meaning and, and purpose? Um, and really understanding yourself and how these work for you, I think, are, are crucial to you building your own well-being up. We know right. there are things that generally work for most people most of the time. Things that you might, you might do outside of work, like taking exercise, like mm-hmm. having time with family and friends, or the extent to which you want to do that will depend on your personality. <laughs> Speaking of myself as someone with preferences of introversion, uh, things <laughs> like reading won't work for some people. But a key thing is that, again, there are differences between individuals and understanding yourself and your personality. Building our self-awareness helps you to see what works for you and we've been able to put together guidelines for each personality type, which will let people say, well, these are things that tend to work for people like you, so perhaps try try these things. Also, again, in the workplace, there are some general things, like having work which uh, feels relevant to you, which makes you feel you have a purpose, being able to take breaks, etc. The sort of things you might expect, but, you know, it's what came out of our research. But also, again, there are differences between what you might do in a workplace, which will add or take away for your well-being. So just to take the example of extroversion, introversion, for example, and even extroverts like some time alone, even introverts like some time other people, but it's a difference in balance. And if you force people to spend time doing things which are against their personality, mm. that's going to have an impact on their well-being. Even things like office layouts, and we did some work I think about five years ago now, looking at how your personality relates to the sort of office environment that you prefer. And again, there are differences in personality between what people like and dislike. And again, these are things that people could use and build on, thinking about their own office environment and what organisations could use to help improve the well-being of people in their particular offices.
0: It's interesting as well, because I suppose there are those different personality types, as you say, but then when you come into the workplace, I suppose that organizations and leadership within organizations need to have a way of being more I suppose holistic in their approach to individual well-being because you might say okay I know what makes me feel well now but then I go to work and obviously as you say the office environment might not be conducive to that so yeah. I suppose things like these personality types probably help yeah. organizations to do that right? Help the individual to
1: adapt to their environment, help the organization to see that again the same thing we've we've talked about already, one size is to fit all in terms of interventions. Because we know, for example, that lots of organizations have put in place workplace fitness programs. Mm-hmm. We also know that in general, they have an abysmally poor take-up rate in organizations. <laughs> Part of that is how they communicated, part of that is how they implemented, because again we've from some research from my colleagues in the States have done, we know about the way you like to take exercise also relates to who you are and your personality and other factors mm-hmm. as well. So again, it's just taking you away taking people away from a mindset of as a leader in a organization, I know best, I will give you this wonderful thing and expect people to take it up, but actually it may not be what fits them, what suits them, what works for them.
0: So you mentioned personality types there as well. Now, there's some research you've been doing, I believe, relating to gender diversity in the workplace and personality types and at different levels of business. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about that?
1: Certainly. So what we did was we looked at people who'd taken the MySpace type indicator in Europe over the last, uh, I think it was about the last 15 years, if I recall rightly. Actually, I'll tell you, you, I was wrong. It's about 13 years. Unlucky for some, but hopefully it works for this particular project. So what we did was to look at the proportion, for example, of men and women at different levels in the organisation. And sadly, but not unexpectedly, because it's what all the data would say, we found that women, relatively speaking, were overrepresented at lower levels of the organisation and and underrepresented at higher levels of the organisation. So you were less likely to reach... Uh, director, executive, senior management, even middle management, if you were a woman rather than if you were a man. Mm -hmm. We also looked at the way that personality worked in organisations. And one of the aspects of personality we looked at was something that the Mars Mixed Type Indicator looks at, which is... What we've called thinking and feeling, which is really about how you like to make decisions. So people with a preference for thinking like to make decisions on the basis of objective logic, sort of standing outside the situation and taking a dispassionate judgment and decision uh, about what's going on. Whereas people with a preference for feeling prefer to make decisions when they can, which are more values-based, which are about are is this decision congruent with my values, with values of my organisation, with values of society. And also thinking about how decision affects people. So, two quite different styles of making decisions. In reality, we all do both, but we'll have a preference for doing one Mm -hmm. or the other. And it's well documented in lots of evidence from many countries across the world that while most areas of personality don't show a difference between men and women, men on average are more likely to have a thinking preference, and women on average are more likely to have a feeling preference. We looked at how this aspect of personality also varied across levels, so what we found was that the thinking preference again was overrepresented at high levels of the organization, so you're more likely to reach for higher levels if you had a preference of thinking, and less likely if you had a preference of feeling. And when we looked at the data in more detail, we found that both of those independently had effect on mm-hmm. how you reached for high levels, but also there was an interaction effect. If you were a man, it didn't actually make much difference whether you had a thinking or feeling preference, whether you had a thinking or feeling preference, you were equally likely or unlikely to reach for higher levels in organizations. For women, you were less likely to reach for higher levels in organizations if you had a feeling preference. There's a big difference in a proportion of a feeling preference at the top level, much less, compared to the bottom level, much more. Whereas for men, it was roughly the same proportion of thinking and feeling at a bottom level at a top level and that might imply that it's the only more difficult for women to reach the top levels for more difficult for most women to reach the top levels and women may need to adapt their style in a way which isn't imposed on men if they right. want to reach the higher levels in organisations so it's almost a double whammy Mm-hmm. not only are you less likely to reach your high levels if you're woman you're especially less likely to reach those high levels if you're this feeling perhaps this more right. values-based decision making and we know from other people's research that actually that values-based decision making is actually quite useful in high levels of organizations mm-hmm. because if you make a decision based purely on the objective logic you're missing a big part of what your organization or your clients actually need because people are looking at values. People are looking at how those decisions affect people. And there's some evidence from other people's research that those decisions, if they take both into account, are more rounded. certainly there's also some evidence from research that when people do make these more people-centered transformational decisions as leaders, they're actually seen as less good leaders by right. other people. In organisation, so there's a real interesting nexus of gender and personality, and what's seen as good and what's seen as less good, going on there. A really difficult Gordian knot to try and untangle in real life organisations.
0: So, is is there anything you think that organisations can do about that to to remove this? As you say, it's something which is kind of imposed upon. The businesses and the people within them and their advancement in that way, where you, there's this imposition that you have to have a certain way of thinking. Is is there an easy way, a solution to that, or do you think it's going to take quite some time? To I don't time? think it's an
1: easy way because a lot of it is tied up with the tacit knowledge in organisations. The knowledge of mm. the way we do things around here, this view of what is seen as a good manager, um, that the sometimes the more sort of uh, hubristic manager is or a hubristic leader of a person who has charisma who's leading from the front is seen as the right person for the job and we can see that in organizations and maybe we can see it in politics at the moment as well um but actually those leaders you know sometimes crush and sometimes crush and sometimes crush and burn mm-hmm. and sometimes there's some more rounded approach to leadership that's actually what's needed one of the problems is there's something called the, gra- the glass cliff not the grass cliff which i was about to say the glass cliff. <laughs> and a gra- glass cliff is a little bit like the glass ceiling and it's been again other people have done a lot of research on this in the uk and also in benevolence in particular where what seems to happen sometimes in organizations so that when organizations aren't doing well they might get a different sort of person in as a leader uh, given what happens in organizations that might be a woman might be someone from an ethnic minority background. And sometimes they're put into organizations at this difficult time. Mm-hmm. There's often a big backlog of things that need to change. And they will tend to move on before the next leader comes in, who may be the sort of leader of the organization was looking for in the past, perhaps white and male. And mm-hmm. that person may get the credit for what actually went right in the organizations. Right. So often it's seen that less typical leaders, women, people minorities actually don't do as well, whereas actually they're put in sometimes in a somewhat impossible position.
0: Wow, okay. So, I mean, so I'm, I'm something very very depressed here. No, no, you? but it's it's fascinating and it's something I think that organizations need to identify, of course, if it's taking place. But as you say, there is this tacit element of it where it's like, well, this is the way things are done. And it yeah. ties in against what we were saying about well-being, things like that as well, and how to have a more holistic approach, you do sort of have to change that that way of thinking in, in some respect that oh Absolutely. this is just how things are done because you wouldn't have a more flexible understanding of what a leader is or what well-being is or any of those things if you say well this is just the way things Absolutely. are
1: done so no, I, let, I was just going to say that research we did was based on six hundred thousand people across europe okay and we've just been crunching some of the numbers of the states as well where we actually had 1.8 million people who've actually been through MBTI wow. over the last hundred years and sadly, we have exactly the same effect. Right. Uh, exactly the same effect as we had in Europe with women underrepresented high higher levels, feeling preference underrepresented at higher levels, and that difference in the likelihood of women having a feeling preference at higher re- high levels, but no difference in particular for men. So, exactly the same findings in the States. The data suggests that over the last 15 years, the situation has got slightly better. Hmm. Only slightly better,
0: so it needs to get much better. Yeah, so
1: things are on the right track, but you know, on a current basis, it's going to take an awfully long time for those differences to be made up.
0: Of course, so I I mean, we could talk about this endlessly. I feel because, but we should probably move on because we've got things to discuss. So let's talk about technology then. You've also looked into, I believe, this kind of always on culture in the workplace right. or in and in, in our general lives. What kind of effect do you think this is having on engagement maybe in the workplace and this this I suppose this culture we've created of being always on? So we
1: said yeah being always on, being always contacted, being have the phone beside your bed. Yep. So you can, you know, if you want to, you can look at your emails in the in the middle of the night mm-hmm. if there's nothing good on television perhaps. <laughs> um, and it's interesting you ask about you ask about engagement because the always there's always on culture is actually something of a double-edged sword. Again, this is based on uh, some data we collected on a little over a 1,000 people. And we found that people who were more engrossed in the always-on culture, who had better access to emails and other communications and calls outside of normal working hours, actually had high levels of job satisfaction, said they felt more engaged with their work, so that was a good thing Mm -hmm. but also suffered high levels of distraction uh, more work home conflict and more interference with their their home life and work Uh, they found they had more compulsive checking of their phones and so on not just at work work, elsewhere as well Uh, they found they were more distracted uh, less able to complete tasks at work so it's a double it's a double-edged sword. So it f- makes you feel more involved, mm-hmm. but probably at the cost of your home life, um possibly at the cost of you actually not doing
0: your job so well. It's interesting, I suppose, because obviously part of feeling more engaged and successful at work sounds great, but it does sound like it's sort of leaking out and affecting other parts of your life. And I suppose it's because it blurs those boundaries if you've got this little box which has everything in it, your leisure and your work, it's so easy to slip between the two. Absolutely. You don't need to go all the way to an office. To, to and paint. actually
1: that slippage works better for some people than others. And again, this goes back to self-awareness. This goes back to personality right. because we know that based on your personality type, some people actually quite like that interaction. Quite like mm-hmm. that interaction. Other people really want to keep things boxed and work much more efficiently <laughs> yep. if they could keep things boxed. And if organisations enforce that working outside hours and enforce that sort of culture, that can have a very detrimental effect on people. Mm-hmm. One of the things we did was we asked people we asked people just to write down some of the advantages and disadvantages they perceived of, of this always on culture. And the first thing to say is that while people did quote advantages, we were much more likely to talk about disadvantages. And uh in terms of your work interfering a little bit with your life outside work, uh, my colleague Nikita, who was crunching this data, she actually found herself getting very depressed right. when she was reading some of the uh, some of the disadvantages. Uh, I just wrote down one, which I know she she found particularly sad. Uh, disadvantages of the always-on culture: you suffer burnout, you have no private life, there's no time for your children, you're going to have regrets at the end of your life, uh, at least a lot of tense situations. We lose friends and close relationships because you can't keep in talk- contact with them. Wow. So that was one particular, just one person's example Righty. of the disadvantages of the always-on culture. Quite an extreme one, perhaps, but we're seeing similar sorts of themes, similar sorts of themes coming out.
0: Is there an argument in in this, you think, which is that, well, this is just the way that work is changing and our lives are changing now and there's nothing that can be done. This is just how we're progressing we're becoming more kind of infused with our with our phones and our technology and this is just how we're going to operate from now on or do you think no we can we can push back against this
1: yeah i think it's it there's an argument but i'm not sure it's a very convincing argument right because even if we're more connected with our with our phones and younger generations and digital leaders are particularly connected and are always on their phones mm-hmm they don't necessarily always on for work. The fact they're communicating with their friends positive, via phone, right? yeah. you know, it's, it's not, uh, is doesn't mean they have to be always on in the workplace. Um, we looked at the things which contribute to stress from the always on culture. and uh, The number one reason was things about your organisational culture. And this is something that leaders can certainly do to actually help alleviate the strain of his own culture. So, really creating a culture where people are allowed to switch off Mm -hmm. in from work in their free time setting clear expectations about when we'd expect you to be available when we wouldn't expect you to be available and this is probably not a surprising thing to say but it came up very clearly research for leaders acting as a role model right uh for to not if they do want to work all hours themselves that's fine but don't necessarily expect other people to do so because that will lead to burnout. Even things like sending emails and communications in the middle of the night, depending who they're sending it to, that person may feel obliged to answer, or they may not, and this again it goes back to mm-hmm. the individual's personality. So simple things like making that email queue to appear at some more reasonable time. Right it's going to take the strain off people. So there's lots of very straightforward things that leaders and other people as an organization could do, I think, in order to take advantage of your always culture because clearly, especially for multinational organizations, which are different time zones and so on, there are advantages to this ease of communication. So to take advantage, to make most of those advantages while trying to alleviate
0: some of those disadvantages. So finally then, you mentioned uh, leaders there and, and what they can do in that role model part. For those listening, business leaders, HR leaders, people leaders who are listening, what, I suppose, can, can, how can they act to change their organisation's well-beings with these findings in mind, do you think?
1: I think there's a whole there's a whole raft of things that people could do. Uh, they could do things like take a well-being audit, and that's something we've sought to do with our clients. We have a a model and a, a questionnaire that we use of organisations to actually look at but levels of well-being in organizations against different areas, and we know from our research the source of activities which might help boost well-being in each of those areas. They could do some simple things like look at to what extent they have an always-on culture, to what extent they're acting as role models for the, always, for the, always, for the always-on culture. They could do straightforward things like build their own self-awareness, look at their own personality and whether it's using our tools for out big time indicator, or of our personality is with out there to just really start to understand themselves, but not to stop there to start to pl- apply that knowledge to other people to apply that knowledge to how they they work with other people and all of this takes time, but it's not necessarily an easy journey, but it's a worthwhile journey and we know that self awareness does ultimately pay dividends in terms of ultimately of organizational performance. research was done a little while ago um which demonstrate that organizations which have a high degree of agreeableness actually hmm. perform better financially. So it's right. not just a nice thing to do. It's actually worth for of the bottom line as well. And one of the things we've done in our organization is in looking at our own bottom line, because we're a commercial organization, actually we become what's called a B Corp, a benefit corporation, which looks at... Sometimes, something that's called the triple bottom line right. so looking not just at profits but also as people, looking at the planet, looking at the environment and sustainability to build that sort of wider view of ourselves and again this is something which for many organisations if leaders take from it will provide a greater deal of meaning for people in that organisation and again will have to boost well-being.
0: Of course well, plenty of work to be done I think but um, research like this I think really does help to try and focus that That approach, I think. Thank you so much, John, for joining us in the podcast, and hopefully we'll have you again very soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the HRD Live Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe for a brand new episode every week. Thank you for listening, and see you again next time.